Well, friends, I want to invite you now to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1 for the next bit of our time together. We're going to work verse by verse through one of the oldest accounts of who Jesus is and what he did, written by one of Jesus' own friends who was there to see it for himself, written so that people who didn't get the benefit of knowing Jesus personally could come to know him through his testimony. We've been using John chapter 1 to try to orient ourselves during this time when so many of us are thinking more than we usually do about what it means that Jesus was born into our world. And John chapter 1 verses 14 to 18 uh, is as clear and concise a description of that as you'll find anywhere in the Bible. As you're uh, looking for that, I want to make sure if you're visiting with us, you know we've got Bibles that look like this one that we put nearby, hopefully within arm's reach of where you're sitting now. We'd love for you to have this. This is put there so that you can take it with you, not just use it this morning. Uh, and it, for this morning, you'll find what we're going to look at together on page 833 in this little Bible. Uh, I don't watch a ton of movies. Those I do watch, I barely remember. Even weeks after I've watched it, ask my wife. It's uncanny how little I remember from what I watch. But there is a movie that we watched, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago that I cannot forget. It's a movie called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. I don't get the sense that it's that well known. Maybe it was back then, but I never hear anybody talking about it. It's, it's a movie that was based on a book by the same name, uh, a memoir uh, that tells the story of a French editor and socialite named Jean-Dominique Bobby. This was a guy who was living the good life as he defined it, and as almost everyone else from everywhere would define it. He had everything. This guy was living in Paris. He was the famous editor of Elle magazine. He was wealthy. He had a bunch of friends who liked to do all the same things that he liked to do. He had lots and lots of girlfriends along the way. And then, at the height of his powers, he suffered a massive stroke out of nowhere woke up from a coma 20 days later to find himself trapped in a completely immobilized body. Same guy, same experiences, same memories, same interests, in some ways same skill set, at least mentally, trapped in a body that couldn't move. Same active brain, same sense of himself, same ambitions and desires, locked down. He couldn't move at all. He couldn't hear very well. He could only see from one eye. And the only way he could communicate was to blink that eye in a sort of Morse code kind of fashion that his friends and caregivers came to understand. Imagine being that guy having experienced what he experienced for all the years that he experienced it, having, in his definition, everything, and have it all taken away, and know that day after day after day. It's an unforgettable look at what it'd be like to be that person, to have one identity all of a sudden submerged in the limitations of another. Now, you know what reminded me of that story this week is the central claim of the Bible passage that we're considering together this morning in John chapter 1. Perhaps it's 
it's, it's the most shocking claim that you'll find anywhere in the scriptures if you learn to hear it as the first readers would have heard it. The claim is simply that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's John 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. John's already told us who he means by this word. Verse 1 says that the word was God. Verse 3 says that the word who is God made everything that exists. Everything in this world with no exceptions, wherever you look, only exists because he made it. And now John tells us this same word that he's been talking about so far became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, many of those who would have read, probably most of those who would have read this originally would have been Jewish Christians or Jewish explorers who were considering what it means to be a Christian. They would have known the point that John means for us to take this morning. You can almost imagine their pushback, their shock at what he's just said. The one who, who fed his people with bread from the sky would go hungry? The one who makes the rain to fall on the earth, who gave his people water to drink out of the rock, he'd go thirsty? The keeper of Israel, who neither slumbers nor sleeps, will grow tired? The God who made the world, the God who established all of its rules, he'd be subject to those rules? He'd get hot in the summer? Cold in winter? He'd be limited by gravity? When he jumps, he comes back down? The unappro- You're saying, John, that the unapproachable God, whose presence among his people was symbolized in their temple and in the Ark of the Covenant, whose presence meant death to the one who entered it, who wasn't supposed to, to the one who touched what he shouldn't have touched. This unapproachable God would become not just approachable, not just touchable, but mockable, beatable, even, even killable. Really? How? There's another question that matters even more than the how. Why? Why would he do this? See, friends, I took a very calculated risk in starting this sermon with that story about the guy who edited Elle magazine in Paris. Anytime you start playing around with analogies for how the life of God works, you're on dangerous ground unless you, unless you throw in a lot of caveats like the one I'm about to throw in. The Bible is very clear that when the Son of God who is God eternal and unchanging, entered our world in the man, Jesus. He held on to his divinity in every sense. In no sense did he stop being God, even though he was fully human. In that sense, it's, it's different in a lot of ways from, from the situation I described. But the Bible does talk about the Son of God coming into our world as an emptying of himself as a willful humiliation that he took on to himself. As a kind of setting aside of glory that was his by right. You'll see this in Philippians chapter 2. And 
in a way beyond our understanding. He did take on our limits. And friends, for all the, all the care we might have to take in applying an example like Jean-Dominique Bobby to, to the incarnation of the Son of God, for all the care we might have to, uh, to, to take in saying what, the ways that it is kind of like that and the ways that it isn't kind of like that. I mean, the, the biggest, most glaring, most obvious difference between the two situations is that Bobby never would have taken on those limitations by choice. Those limits happened to him. He woke up in them. But the Bible makes very clear that the Son of God chose these limits for himself. He came into our world on purpose. So why? Why would he do that? That's the question I want us to consider this morning from what John tells us in chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. I want to ask you now to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read what John writes to us about Jesus in these verses. This is the word of the Lord. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is God's word. You can be seated. Why would the Son of God put on flesh and dwell among us? There's our question for the morning, and I want to show you two main answers to that question from John 1, 14 to 18. Here's number one. Point number one this morning. Why would God do this? Well, the word became flesh, first of all, so that we could receive grace. The word became flesh so that we could receive grace. When John tells us that the word became flesh, immediately he connects that event with what we could see by it. That was the point of it. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, verse 14, and we have seen his glory. But what glory? What have we seen? A glory as of the only Son from the Father. But what glory do we see in Him? It's a glory that's full of grace and truth. Do you see that? Verse 14. Now, look at verse 17. Grace, or excuse me, verse 16. Grace is once again the focus there. He's filling in what He's just told us, this statement that He's just made. He gives us a four. I'm going to explain this a little bit more. For from His fullness, we have all received. He came to give grace upon grace. And then just in case we didn't understand the point, he gives us verse 17. For, let me tell you what I mean by grace upon grace. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth through Jesus Christ. When the word became flesh, it was so we could see God's glory through God's grace to sinners like us. What does John have in mind? How does this work? I think verse 17 is huge for this. 
He tells us that the law came through Moses. That was grace. It was good that God was kind enough to show his people what was good for them. He, he, he gives the law to say, here, follow these instructions. They'll help you. Obey and it'll go well with you. A good set of instructions for something you don't know how to do on your own, that's a precious gift of grace from someone who does know what's better, who does know what you ought to do. But, but the problem with that gift of grace is that Moses, he could do nothing to help God's people obey these good rules that God gave them. And they didn't obey those good rules and, and neither have you or I. So what then? What, 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 what do you do when you've got good instructions that you haven't been able to follow? What do you do when it's, when it's too late to follow them perfectly? Well, then what Israel needed, what, what we need, me and you, well, then what you need is grace upon grace. Not just the grace of the good rules to know what would be good to do, but a grace for people who have failed to do those good things. Not just someone to say, here, here's what you should do. Do this. But someone to say, here, here's what I've done for you. Receive this. Do you see the difference? Both are good gifts. One is infinitely more gracious. I've spent an inordinate amount of time in my life putting together cheapo Ikea style bookshelves for the inordinate number of books in my library. I'm not a handyman. I don't have vision for that sort of thing. I, I don't have a lot of drive to figure out problems that come with projects like that. I always appreciate the really clearly marked instructions that tend to come with those cheapo bookshelves, you know? It's like a whole page of them. I usually have to spend like 10 minutes reading them ahead of time. But, uh, you know, it tells you what to do step by step by step, one through like 24, however many steps there might be. Make sure you got all the packets of the right, you know, the right screws and little knobs and everything that you're going to need in the right places at the right time. It's almost foolproof. But even with instructions like that, over the years, even with the very large number of shelves like that I've put together, uh, I've always had trouble. You know, I get to going too fast, miss a step here and there, and I got to backtrack. I got to take apart whatever it was I'd already put together by that point. Uh, sometimes I, I'd get going and I'd, I'd actually start thinking that I knew what I was doing <laughs> or maybe that I, I could see a better way to do something. I'd get a, get a little bit ahead and go off script. Uh, the instructions were fine. There was nothing wrong with those instructions. The, the, the issue was with me. Then a few years back, we moved into a new house and my buddy Dave built us a brand new shelf of solid wood according to his own design. I don't know how he did it. That may well, as well just have appeared as a black magic for all I was involved in the process or for anything I have the ability to do for myself. And he just showed up with that shelf at my house. I helped him move it in. We set it in place and it stayed right there for like seven, eight years until we moved it out. That shelf stood the test of time. My kids not only could, but did climb on that thing like a ladder. It never gave. Now, when he showed up at my house with that shelf, what he essentially said is, here's what I built for you instructions were nice that came in the box of all that chip wood furniture I've put together there was a kind of grace in them what I got from Dave that was grace upon grace upon grace that's what the incarnation was for 
That's why the word became flesh. This theme of glory that John talks about here in verse 14, a glory that when he became flesh, we could see in a new way. It carries all through his whole gospel. There is a glory that Jesus showed us when he obeyed his father's instructions perfectly. Not once did he go off script. Not once did he get ahead of his father's plan for what he should accomplish and win. From every day that he lived, it was his food to do the will of his father, he told us. And then he died, a death he didn't deserve to die. He hung there, beaten, mocked, humiliated, suffering as the Lamb of God for the sins of those who rejected his grace in the first place. And he came to do exactly that, to fulfill a law we couldn't, to take a punishment we deserved. He came to show us glorious grace we couldn't have seen if he didn't come. Think about his perfect life and his death for sinners as a piece of custom-built furniture from the greatest of all carpenters. Fashioned completely to perfection and then turned around and given right back to those who trust him. The law said, follow these instructions. You'll have a place to sit down that you can rest in. Do this and you can sit. You can rest. But the glorious grace of the word made flesh says, here's a chair I built for you. Sit down. It'll hold your weight. I made sure of it. Have a seat. And friends, if you want in on Jesus, that's your role. That's the extent of it. Your role is sit down. Rest your whole life on what he built for you. Stop acting like you could build something that'll stand the test of time. You can't. And you don't have to. Because what he, what he built isn't going anywhere. Let me push this one little bit further. It's grace upon grace that the word became flesh to show us. It tells us something crucial about God and it tells us something crucial about ourselves. Here's what it tells us about God, that the word became flesh to show us grace upon grace. It tells us that God, the only one that is, the one who made us all and everything else that exists, this God is a God who takes sin seriously and who seriously loves sinners. Grace comes out of the meeting between God's holiness and God's love. See, if God were just this cosmic rule maker alone, he would have rested content with a perfectly satisfactory set of rules that he gave. It's no skin off his nose if you put the shelf together properly. Nothing wrong with the rules. It's on you to see if you can put it all together. That God wouldn't, wouldn't be a God of grace. Holy, maybe. Or if God was, was like some sort of cosmic Santa Claus, you know, a permissive grandfather who only ever says yes to his grandkids. A God of a kind of shallow love like he's often assumed to have in our day is not a God who would need grace either. He'd just shrug it off when his people do things he told them not to or fail to do the things that he tells them to do. He'd just be like, yeah, whatever, it doesn't matter that much. That sort of shallow love is more like indifference than love. And a God like that would never have needed to become human. He'd just let us carry on the way we are. The coming of Jesus, that only makes sense if the God we're dealing with is a God who takes sin so seriously he cannot look the other way. But a God who is so loving that he would pay the price 
that that sin demands for people who turn their back on him. When he came to our world to be more visible to us than he'd ever been before, this right here is the glory he came to show us. That's what this grace upon grace shows us about God. He takes sin seriously, but he seriously loves sinners. Now here's what this grace upon grace shows us about us. We are in, me and you, we are in serious need of help. I mean like serious need of help. If there were any other way, God would have taken it. In essence, that's what Jesus was asking for on the night that he was to be killed. When he prays to his father in the garden of Gethsemane, he prays to God, please, father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Not this. Some other way. It's so bitter to drink down this cup. So heavy to carry this burden to the end. Isn't there some other way? But there was no other way to rescue us from the pit that we dug for ourselves. Friends, that is no flattering picture to me or to you. We have to face up to that picture and all of its ugliness before we can receive what Jesus came to offer. I saw a pastor recently point out that some gifts require you to swallow your pride before you can receive them. You know, maybe somebody gives you a book on healthy eating for Christmas, for example. Or, you know, imagine if my wife was to give me as a stocking stuffer an annual subscription to wegrowhair.com. Uh, or someone offers you a breath mint when you didn't ask for one, like out of nowhere. Last week I was uh, in, out in California for my little brother's wedding last weekend, and all of us groomsmen were sitting around forever. You know how these things go, just waiting on the festivities to start. You know, we were finished with our duties to that point. We had taken the photos we were supposed to take, and we got hungry. We didn't have a lunch plan. It was late, late, uh, late, late lunch, early afternoon. So somebody just Googled the best burgers in town and made a run for what turned out to be a great burger, really greasy spoon type burger. You know, at first we're just being careful not to spill anything on our white shirts. You know, we got our ties thrown back over the shoulder and we're really pretty proud of ourselves for dodging the ketchup and the mustard that we were bringing into our pristine environment. And, and we were just enjoying the fact that, you know, we're sharing a burger just about an hour or so before the, uh, the, this man tied the knot. My little brother and his, all his friends were around. And then shortly after the burger went down, uh, he realized what he'd done. It hit him. And see, these burgers were covered with onions. I mean, not cooked ones. I mean, not like the cooked ones. I mean, like raw, pungent onions. That's one reason they were so good. And they had something like a, I don't know, maybe like an everything bagel type seasoning on the top of the bun. I don't know what it was, but it was a, a pungent combo. And, and you could see him start to put the, the pieces together. He's about to stand inches away from his father-in-law. He's about to stand inches away from a preacher. He's about to stand inches away from his new bride. He's going to have to kiss his new bride. And his breath smells terrible. Fortunately, one of his buddies had a pack of mints or gum, tossed it to him. Problem solved. Now, you think he felt insulted in that moment? Did he have the space to think, hey, what are you trying to say? No. He knew he needed the help. 
And he would, he would take whatever help he could get. Friends, when what, when what you need is so obvious and what you're offered is so valuable, you will take it. You'll take all of it. And that's what it takes for you to get in on the grace that the word became flesh to show to us. How are you at receiving gifts? I don't mean are you easy to please, you know, like you'll take anything. I mean, are you willing to receive help from others? Or maybe are you one of those folks who's just a lot more comfortable giving? Being the one who's generous, the one who's a provider. You know, somebody that that other people can depend on no matter what, but you get really uncomfortable asking for help from others. How about when it comes to Jesus? Friends, if that's your posture towards him, it will keep you from seeing the glory that the word became flesh to show us. That's a glory that's full of grace, full of truth or or faithfulness. To see that glory, you gotta accept, you know what? There is no furniture I could build that'll hold my weight. I'm over it. There is no rest in my power or my skill or my follow through. I'm over it. All that lies at the end of that path is more pain and more destruction for me and the people around me. I'm over it. I need help. I need grace. Then you're ready to see the glory of Jesus for the life-giving good news that it is. Are you ready? The word became flesh so we could receive grace. That's the first answer to our question this morning. Why would he do this? Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Well, there's a second answer that John gives us in these verses. Secondly, the word became flesh so that we could know God. The word became flesh so that we, me and you, even we, could know, could really know God. See, God's grace through Jesus isn't just a parting gift that you get on the way out the door. God's grace that that he shows us through Jesus, it's, it's way more than even a pardon that a judge might give to someone who was guilty that he decided to let off the hook. You know, like, like, like nailing, slamming that gavel down and moving on to the next case. You're free to go. Go, make, go live your life now. Next case, please. There'd be a kind of grace in that, but God has way more for us than that. His grace is always purpose-driven. His grace is so that we can know him. It's about removing barriers to knowing God because sin was a barrier. We couldn't have a good friendship with him as we were. He came to give us grace so that we could know God. Knowing God is what grace is for, in other words. And this is a huge theme throughout John's gospel. It's something we saw often in our study of Jesus' final words to his disciples just before he faced the cross. Uh, Earlier this fall, we looked at some of this. But it begins right here in our text, especially in verse 18. Look at it with me. No one has ever seen God, John says. This is just great Old Testament theology right here. The only God who is at the Father's side, now he's talking about the Word, now he's talking about Jesus. He has made him known. Maybe you're here exploring the concept of God this morning. Maybe you've been seeking him for a while now. Or maybe you've been frustrated that if God is out there, he seems to play hard to get. Where do you find him? 
How could you know that you have? I hope you can, have, you can see the relief, if that's what you've been feeling and thinking. I hope you can see the relief that's there for you in, in chapter 1, verse 18. John gets it. He gets it that seeing God has always been hard. This is not a new problem. He's tapped in and he's, he's speaking directly to the problem you've experienced. And, and that problem that, that no one has seen God, it, it comes from the, from the fact that God is an entirely different sort of being than anything else in our world. He, he doesn't actually belong here. He made it all, but that means he's beyond it all. He doesn't live within it. That's why no one has ever seen God. How could you possibly know a being that doesn't belong in our world? To know a God like that, a God big enough to have made it all to begin with, he'd have to make himself known to you. He'd have to bridge that gap. Back in the 60s, C.S. Lewis wrote a really helpful essay called The Seeing Eye on how it is that God relates to this world that we're living in. How different that relationship is to what we might imagine it to be. He says, we gotta be real careful that that we don't think about God as hidden in some other part of our world, you know? Like some place we just haven't gotten to yet. Like, like he's hiding out behind Mars, hoping the rover doesn't catch a sight of him or hiding out deep in one of those ocean trenches that still hasn't been explored. He's not out there like in some second floor while we're all stuck down here on the first floor and haven't found the stairs yet. He, he doesn't relate to our world like that as something within it. He relates to our world more like Shakespeare relates to Hamlet, a character in his play. Shakespeare's the author of that play. He's the director of that play. He's the one creating this world and each of its characters. In a way, that means he's always there. There's a presence of Shakespeare throughout the Hamlet play. But you won't find him as a character in that play. You won't find him by asking around. It's not somebody that Hamlet just hasn't met yet. How would, how would Hamlet come to know Shakespeare? Well, that would be up to Shakespeare. He'd have to write himself into that play if Hamlet's gonna have any chance at knowing him. And John is telling us that's exactly what God has done. No one has ever seen God, but the only God, the Son of God, the Word who was God and who made everything that is, the one who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. Friend, if you're exploring Christianity this morning, let me boil this down and make it as simple as I can make it. One of the most important things you could possibly know about God is that God wants to be known by you. Let me say it again. One of the most important things you could possibly know about God is that God wants to be known by you. Just look how, how far he's gone to make it possible. Just look what he's done to show you, to make it clear to you that that's what he wants. I mean, just think of how he breaks into our world. If he was going to do something like that, he might have chosen to come as an angel in a blazing light. You know, the kind that strike fear into the hearts of all who see them. That's in the Old Testament. That happens. The angel of the Lord comes sometimes to speak on his behalf. People are terrified. They don't get close for good reason. He could have come as a sort of radiant white knight, you know, on a, on, on a, on a white horse with a, with a big, sharp, shining sword. I mean, that's how the Bible pictures the return of Jesus. It would be appropriate for him to come that way. But look how he did come this time. Look how the word 
chose to become flesh. He came as a baby. Now, maybe once he decides to come as a baby, you think, well, at least he'll come as a royal baby. I mean, we've seen those born in our own lifetimes. We know how that works. Born into a palace, protected by stone walls and iron gates, guarded by armed guards. Royal babies born into this world semi-regularly tend to come with lots of rules for even those few people who are able to approach them. You know, you can only come in at certain times and in certain ways. You got to follow all the protocols. There's rituals involved. You got to have the proper bowing and respectable distance. But, but Jesus, when he was born as a baby, he was surrounded by animals. He was laid down in a manger, a feeding trough. As if God is screaming at us, no protocols here. Not anymore, just come. Anybody can. And, in, and just in case we're still missing the point, who is it that first gets the news that God has become human in the form of this baby? Not the heads of state, not the religious elite. There's a bunch of shepherds out there minding their own business, keeping watch over their flocks by night. This is a God who wants to be known by anyone and everyone who will draw near to him in Jesus. It's like God is shouting to you this morning, friends. It's like he's shouting through this baby, I want you to know me. And think of what this baby became as he grew into a man, a man who welcomed children that others wanted to push away. He said, ah, no, 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 I want them to know me. Don't you even think about holding them back. A man who, who touched lepers that others wanted to cast out. A man who sat around the table and ate with sinners, notorious sinners that other people were afraid to even speak to. And then think about what, what this baby grew up into. A man who would hang upon a cross, his arms outstretched until death to remove the stain of sin that had blocked his beloved people from his presence for so long. Think about those outstretched arms on that cross as him screaming to you, I want you to know me. This is what it was all for. It's what we read from Colossians 1 earlier this morning. In him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Why? Through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven or in this room right now, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's why. That's why. The word became flesh so we could know God. That's what John is teaching us. And this simple, staggering, almost unimaginable truth puts one simple, staggering question to every one of us. This is a question that's worth reflecting on this week, all the time, especially this week as we celebrate Jesus' birth in a special way. Clearly, God wants you to know him. Look at how far he's gone to make that possible. You can see how important it is to him, can't you, that you know him? How important is it to you? Us knowing God is what drove the word to become flesh and what drove his life from beginning to gruesome end. Where does knowing God shape your life? 
Now I realize that's a, that's a big question and difficult to answer, both because it's so big and because it's so obvious that knowing God could always be more important to us than it is. It's not a question meant to shame you. But I do think it's the right question to sit and pray with in response to what John has shown us about Jesus in this text. I think it's the right question, to, a question that should drive us to our friends to ask, how could I make knowing God more important to my life in the days and weeks ahead? That's a question worth asking. And to that end, I wanna leave you with two reminders to help you. Two reminders. As you think about how could you make what was so important to God important to you. Here's the first reminder. You need to remember that avoiding God will always be easier than pursuing him. You're gonna, have to, you're gonna, you're gonna need some discipline and some follow through to pursue him in the way that he's made open to you. That same essay from C.S. Lewis that I mentioned earlier, Lewis talks about a little bit later in the essay, he talks about how to go about avoiding God despite the fact that he's made himself noble for us. Here's a quote from C.S. Lewis. In our own time and place, and this was the 60s, all right? In our own time and place, Lewis says, avoiding God is extremely easy. I'll see if this list of examples doesn't sound like 2022 to you. Avoid silence. Avoid solitude. Avoid any train of thought that leads off the beaten track. Concentrate on money. Sex, status, health, and above all, your own grievances. Keep the radio on. You might say, make sure Netflix is set to stream that next episode automatically. Use plenty of sedation. If you must read books, select them carefully. But you'd be safer to stick to the papers or insert Twitter or whatever you'd like to put there. You'll find the advertisements helpful, Lewis says, especially those with a sexy or snobbish appeal. If you want to avoid God, stick to the ads. He wrote that 60 years ago. It's uncanny how spot on that sounds, isn't it? And I, I, I remind you of this simply because it helps us to know what we're up against. That if knowing God is important to us, it will mean war on the default mode that we're otherwise just going to be carried along by. It will mean war on what comes natural. It'll mean focus and effort, a good plan and a lot of help to follow through on pursuing him in the ways he's made available to us. Those ways are simple and straightforward. We're doing one right now by gathering together. It's right here in his word. He's available to you through prayer. But if you wanna avoid him, go with the flow. Knowing him will be harder. But the second thing I wanna remind you of as we close is that knowing God is worth the effort. It is absolutely worth the effort. He is worth it. If all we had to go on were these five verses that we've looked at this morning, you could see that he's worth it, couldn't you? This is a God who's worth knowing. Sometimes a barrier in knowing God can be that, I think an unhealthy and unnecessary fear of him. There's a kind of fear of God that's celebrated in the Bible, a reverence, a confidence that, that he's just not like us and is worthy of so much more. But being afraid of God, that's not necessary. And whether conscious or not, we might think of him as plain hard to get. Or we might see him as harsh or dangerous, at least for people with problems like ours. That, that some way, if we come close, we'll get burned. 
And if you think that might be a barrier in your heart, then my encouragement to you, friend, is just to take these five verses and to meditate on them. Just like now, like do it this afternoon. We'll be done in a minute. Do it then. Read them. Read them again. Then read them again. Then stop and pray. Then read them again. Then read them slowly with each word and each verse being emphasized in a different way. Read them until, like, 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 until, the, until, until the meat is just falling off that bone. See what happens if you do. Because in these verses, John is showing us a God who took on our flesh in all its limits so that we could know him in all his glory. And the glory that he came to show us, remember, is not the glory of the burning bush even or the pillar of fire or the angel of the Lord who strikes fear into all who see him, but a glory that is full of grace and truth. When he put on flesh, he didn't come as a big brother who just wants a closer view on all the things we're doing wrong, just so he'd be in position to pounce quickly when the moment was right. He came to show us more grace upon more grace upon more grace upon more grace ad infinitum through all of eternity. That's what he came for. So the further you go with this God, the more grace you see. That's what he's telling us. Layer by layer, when you pull back on his glory, when you get to know him more, what you find is more grace and more truth, more faithfulness. And who wouldn't want to see more of that? Remember, knowing God is worth the effort. Would you pray with me now that he'll give us what we need to know him through his son? Father, we do pray that you would give us the humility to accept this gift of grace you've given and then the, 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 the discipline to, to use this gift, to enjoy it, to open it day after day after day. And we pray that you would drive us to know you more by continually showing us more of who you are, that we would come to you not from some sense of duty, certainly not from fear, but from joy and love from a confidence that when we look more closely at you, what we see is more and more grace. Show us your glory, we pray, through Jesus. In his name, amen.